Why is power and privilege something we should consider in public policy? Why should we care about it? In fact, this leads us to the sort of first question, why should we care about public policy? Indeed, as I'm sure you've all been asked many times, or maybe you've been the askers for the people towards the back of the, of, of the hall, uh, what is public policy? I'm sure that your family members, friends, and even GSPP students themselves have asked this question, what is it? And in fact, I'm sure many of the students here have even been asked, why don't you get a degree like an MBA or a law degree? Why a public policy degree? The answer to these questions is really that public policy goes beyond asking how to make a profit, which is what MBAs learn about, or how to apply the law, which is what lawyers learn about. It asks these much deeper questions. How can government devise rules that make the private sector work effectively to achieve good ends and not bad ends, and not just to make profits? How can governments write laws that are fair and just? How can governments and nonprofit groups solve the hard problems, the really hard problems, that the private sector cannot solve or only solves partially? Pollution, poverty, public health, providing defense, and ensuring safe communities. Business degrees and law degrees do not provide the skills to answer these questions. They take the current distribution of power and privilege as fixed. But public policy schools do ask these questions, and they do not take the status quo as fixed. Yet at the same time, public policy analysis has a maddening characteristic that I know at times annoys even our students. And that is, in many situations, we are the people who talk about how much things cost. It is public policy analysts who point out that Donald Trump's tax plan would lead to a drop in revenues of almost $10 trillion over 10 years. That would be a reduction in federal revenues of about one-third each year, more than we pay in Social Security each year. Similarly, public policy analysts who have been chairs of the Council of Economic Advisors and Democratic Administrations have pointed out that the claims by the economist Gerald Friedman that Bernie Sanders' economic policies would have huge beneficial impacts on growth rates, income, and employment cannot be supported by the evidence. And according to the former heads of the Council of Economic Advisors, they, the predictions made by this advisor to Bernie Sanders, exceed even the most grandiose predictions by Republicans about the impact of their tax cut proposals. This is annoying. It's annoying when somebody has a vision to tell them that their vision simply doesn't pencil out. So one of the impacts of public policy analysis seems to be that it undercuts political visions that depart from the mainstream. Does that mean that public policy lacks vision? Does it mean that it is inherently conservative? I don't think so. But we do face what our public policy students have come to recognize as pardon the technical language, a decision problem with a budget constraint. That's something we teach our students from the very beginning. On the one hand, we want our students to think boldly and to consider big changes in society that can make it better. But on the other hand, 
we want them to consider the constraints that are there because of budgetary and political realities. This may suggest that we turn our students into skeptics about public policy, but I think we turn them into clear-eyed realists. And I think that is very good, as long as it is coupled with a strong sense of the need to serve the public, especially those who are less powerful and less privileged. I think it is good because there must be somebody, especially in these days, who brings evidence and reality into political discourse. Now, this is a tough thing to do these days. We've seen a lot of unreality, a lot of posturing, a lot of statements with no evidence whatsoever. So, we teach our students to do two things. First, we teach them to get the best possible evidence about what works and how well it's going to work. To get at the truth as much as possible, because we do not want to be like ideologues of the left or the right or the center, and there are ideologues of the center as well, who ignore facts in favor of rhetorical formulas. We want to get at the truth because we do not want to deny the evidence that shows that some things have not worked very well. Racial profiling has not worked very well. It's a bad way to undertake policing. We can do better. The concentration of public housing often creates ghettos that make life worse for people. We can do better by dispersing housing. Food stamps can pay big dividends in adulthood for children who have access to them. We show how food stamps can actually be a positive benefit, not just as the fair and just thing to do for people who are in poverty, but also something that can actually provide young people who get them with great benefits that persist into adulthood and mean when they're 30, 40, 50 years old, they do much better than they otherwise would do in terms of uh, more employment and fewer health problems. We like to show that climate change is real and it is man-made and we could actually do something about it if we limit emissions of CO2 and so on and so on and so on. We want to bring evidence to bear. Sometimes that means we don't agree with ideologues of the left, the right, or the center. We argue, in fact, that the evidence points in a different direction. But in addition to talking about the importance of evidence and knowledge, we also teach our students to take into account the needs of the communities that they serve. We know that values and priorities must be developed in conjunction with everyone, especially the poor, the marginalized, and those who lack wealth and power. Our students, the class of 2016, helped remind us of this in the last two years, and we appreciate that because we believe it's fundamental to make sure that public policy creates a fair and just society. So, as long as inequalities exist and people have unequal opportunities to develop and practice good lives, to get good lives, to obtain the rewards they deserve from their hard work, so long as that's true, we want to make sure that we have public policy students who will analyze those situations and find better ways to solve the problems that confront America and not just rhetorical formulas. The class of 2016 knows these things and I thank them for reminding us about them with their emphasis upon power and privilege. 
but I hope that we've also reminded you and helped you to understand that just wanting to do good is not enough. We have to make sure that the things we propose, the ideas we come up with, actually will do good. Because otherwise, we risk spending a lot of effort and time going down the wrong road and doing bad things. And there's just nothing worse than thinking you're doing good, but actually doing bad. And I'm very hopeful that the public policy training you've gotten here will help you understand better how to really do good in the world and to really make it a better place. And I know each and every one of you wants to do that. And so I hope you've found in our public policy curriculum, in what we've taught you, the tools so that you can, in fact, do those things. More than ever, nothing could be more important than to have dedicated, committed, thoughtful, and immensely talented individuals who want to solve the world's problems. I know that you are those individuals. That's why I'm so thrilled to be at a public policy school. That's why our faculty are so thrilled to be at a public policy school. We now hope you're armed with more evidence and more ways to think about the problems of diverse communities. I will watch your progress with great anticipation, and I will be awestruck, I am sure, as I always am, by what each and every one of you does in the future. Congratulations to you all.